Welcome to I Might Believe in Fairies. I am your host, Aaron Herber. This is a podcast about stories, myths, and the Catholic faith. Welcome to I Might Believe in Fairies, and this is the episode that I'm joined by Christopher Rocchio, author of the Sun Eater series, and I'm going to let Christopher introduce himself. Well, thanks, Aaron. I'm glad to be here. Uh, as you said, uh, my name is Christopher Rocchio. I'm the author of the Sun Eater science fantasy series, which is published by, published by Dog Books, uh, and I've also been in the publishing industry for uh, six years. Uh, I started as an intern working at Bain Books in uh, January 2015, uh, so it's almost seven years, actually. Um, I did a year as an intern there, and then I worked as a junior editor for uh, most of the intervening time since uh, I quit working there in May, and I've been writing full-time. I've uh, written uh, five novels, um, the most recent one of which is going to come out in, or or I guess the next one is coming out in March. I've written it, but it's not out yet. Uh, That's Kingdoms of Death, which is book four, uh, in the Sun Eater series, uh, the last one that was out was Demon in White, and before that, uh, uh, Empire of Silence is the first one. Howling Dark is number two, then Demon in White, then Kings of Death. Man, that was numerically challenged. <laughs> uh, and then the uh, the uh, the outstanding one is uh, The Lesser Devil, which is a sort of short novel that's set in the same universe. Uh, everything I have written, with the exception of one uh, Marvel Comics Thor story, uh, is in the Sun Eater uh, universe, which is. Uh, has been sort of my big project ever since I was a kid. Really, that's um, great. Um, and yeah, you you wrote a Thor comic. That's pretty cool for Marvel. Yeah, um, and yeah, yeah. How did that uh, happen? Uh, I got an email about two years ago uh, from Steve McNiven, who's the uh, the guy who drew uh, Civil War and Old Man oh, Logan yeah. and a bunch of these things. Yeah, yeah, that, yep. and, yeah. He's an amazing artist, uh, one of the best working now. Um, and uh, he said, hey, uh, I just read your book, and I really, really liked it. I saw that you live in Raleigh. I happen to be in Raleigh for a convention. Uh, you don't happen to be here, do you? And I was there by cosmic coincidence. So I went and introduced myself. And uh, a very weird you know, uh, series of events ensued where he uh, asked for my autograph, which felt very backwards, uh, and then asked if I'd ever thought about uh, writing for uh, – writing for comics and i told him no because i have no idea how one gets into uh that industry and apparently the answer uh, as in as in everything in my life from uh, uh well uh, not actually for publishing but uh f- but uh like when i got my my job waiting tables is the answer is who you know <laughs> i uh, i so he uh he got me into uh into publishing uh, uh comic book publishing that way i've done the one story not sure if there's going to be any more but uh, it was real fun. It was real cool getting to work with him and uh, and to and to you know work with this character too. That's been a part of this sort of popular consciousness for you know for ages, right? You know, depending on how you count, right? yeah. Uh, you know, going uh, all the way back to uh, Viking times. Nice. Um, but uh, that was really cool. That's that's great. That's really cool. Um, yeah. So that, that was kind of a fun little like um, side a side thing you got to do, which is I mean like that'd be awesome to to write a Thor comic or any of the Avengers, especially for um, McNiven. Like, that's really cool. Um, Cause I love old man yeah. Logan. That's such a good, such a good story. And um, yeah, so that was a 
That's just cool. Um, I thought I'd I'd ask you that and get that. What, what's it called? Uh, uh, the story is called The Two Worthies, which is, of course, a little bit of a nod to the Nine Worthies okay. um, yeah. and, and Thor's general worthiness. But it's going to be in Avengers uh, 750, okay. the big uh, anniversary issue, which is out in uh, November, on the, uh, this month, actually. It's November now, geez, uh, on the 17th. <laughs> cool. Oh, so, great. Like, two weeks from now. Nice. Yeah. All right. Um, so when everybody hears this, this will probably be, the comic will probably have been out for a few months. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. But, you know, uh, it's still November go by now. it. So, um, yeah, so that's cool. So you're, you're uh, so that's your Thor comic. And then you have your, your huge Empire of, um, your, uh, the Sun Eater series. You have Empire of Silence is number one, Howling Dark, uh, Demon and White. And I'm about a third of the way through Demon and White uh, right now. Cool. And it's it's fantastic. It's really, um, and I I actually pulled some quotes that I really liked that all uh, that go along with the questions I have. Um, so if you don't mind, I'll, I'll read some of those. And, no, no, um, no, that'll be fun. Then the Lesser Devil was cool too. I just I don't have it with me, but I loaned it to a friend. Um, so yeah, so tell us about the series. Um, you have uh, yeah, just 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 kind of go. Let's go with that. Tell us about the series yeah, you wrote. Yeah, uh, sure. <laughs> so, uh, The Sun Eater is a uh, space opera, science fantasy, I like to say, sort of in the tradition of Dune uh, or Star Wars, have been influenced by uh, by other writers like Gene Wolfe, uh, Lois Bujold, uh, folks like that. Um, and it's set 20,000 years into our future. Uh, mankind has spread across about, let's say, the third of the galaxy uh, with this big empire. And it is a story of a young man. Uh, at least at first, a young man at first, named Hadrian, who uh, finds himself stuck in the middle of a war between the human empire and the aliens, the, the Sielsen, who are the first sort of technologically uh, comparable species that humanity has encountered in all of its history um, that can pose a threat to them, right? And so despite not wanting to be involved in this war, Hadrian, uh, you know, is stuck in it, lives his life in it, and... Uh, books are written like a memoir and he tells us on page one that he's the man who ended that war uh, and dealt with the CLs and his story is why and how and about all the things that are not in the uh, official record mm-hmm. uh, so it's got uh, it's got that sort of memoir uh, kind of uh, kind of kind of bent to it yeah um, it, yeah well the way you tell the story is really interesting because he he is telling it from his perspective uh, after all these events have happened and so he and this is I think this is a an, an older form of storytelling where, you know, the, the narrator will give you, you know, what happens at the end, it, closer to the beginning, right? And it's how you get to that point is what makes the story interesting. And so he'll, older Hadrian will drop, you know, like, and then this, you know, and then this happened, and it'll just like one sentence, you know, and then, um, but not until I got to Forgosos, you know, or something. So he'll drop like a, he'll like drop like a, a name or something, or he'll, he'll like reference an event and he's like, Whoa, like that's, that's, that's really ominous, you know? And, uh, yeah, what does go that into mean? These... I think it'll be important. Yeah, right. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And he'll go into these like philosophical or theological like tangents, you know, and kind of like reflect on something, which I, which I just love. I just love how he kind of slips back and forth between, you know, present Hadrian who's in the story, like the younger one, and then him like musing on some idea, you know, um, it's pretty cool. It's a, it's a really interesting way to, uh, at least I think it's an interesting way to tell the story. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, almost the only way I know how at this point, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's always strange writing because almost all of my short stories are 
from different points of view because I've done about a dozen mm-hmm. short stories in the same universe and those will be you know your more traditional third person and the lesser devil is also your more traditional yeah. uh, close third and making that change was very difficult I almost miss uh, I, I miss the the, the character voice because I wanted to do first person um, not because I wanted to imitate any particular person, contrary to uh, what a lot of people may think. I actually hadn't read Book of the New Sun when I started writing this. Yeah. Um, I read it uh, later. And uh, I, I started doing the first person thing simply because I realized that if you're writing in first person, then there's no sort of dead text, right? Every yeah. word uh, helps uh, tell you something about person who's telling it to you right because right. the yeah. narrator is a character right and you can have a third person narrator who's kind of a character right but this makes it a lot more explicit and so that hadrian will take the time to tell you about these random you know sort of digressions right mm-hmm. um tells you about who he is uh in a way that's uh you know illuminating to his character but also it's his fault if you don't like it as opposed to you know people will complain about Tolkien you know digressing about the greenness of the wood which those are of course passages that I I value immensely so I don't know what's wrong with the people who complain about this. And they don't happen that often it's kind of a misattributed thing to Tolkien where he's not he doesn't go that much (laughs) it's 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 a way of signaling that you haven't actually read Lord of the Rings or at least recently, um, right. when people people say that you're like, I we did not read the same book. Uh, <laughs> I understand if you don't go in for poetry, uh, and you're like, what is this A.R. Dill thing that went on for four pages? And when yeah. I say awesome, people might not be uh, might not be satisfied right. with that answer. But uh, <laughs> but the, the first person lets you really uh, really sink into a person's head in a way that you can kind of do in third, but not, not really, yeah. um, certainly not on like a, a rhetorical level in terms of how the text works. So I really, really wanted to do this character study of this character who, you know, is several hundred years old and how he deals with that and with the weight of all of these terrible choices that he's had to make in his life. Cause it's not yeah. an easy life, uh, by any means. So, um, uh, what did, so Hadrian, um, you want to tell, People like I think it's on the first page of you know the first book. Oh yeah, like, sure. What, what did he do? Um, you know that that he's, right. Yeah. So like I said, he uh, he's the guy who ended this war, and he did that by uh, destroying an entire solar system, mm-hmm. right? So what he what he did was uh, was blow up the sun. Uh, <laughs> how is something that I have not explained yet, and yeah. when and the precise circumstances of why. Because um, those are the interesting questions. What happens? You could put if you could put my story, the story in a, anyone's story, in a Wikipedia article and convey the same amount of detail as the book, then it's not a good enough book, right? Yeah. There needs to be more stuff. Uh, And and so those questions, you know, why and how are more interesting than what I think. And this is true of any story. Uh, But I wanted to sort of take the what partially off the table by giving it to you at the beginning, like we were talking about. And so he he tells you on page one, you know, I am this guy, I did this horrible thing. Um, Was it necessary? Well, you know, I'm going to leave that up to you. Uh, let me uh, let me show you, right? Because yeah. uh, you know, of course, showing people is uh, more rhetorically effective than uh, right and dramatically entertaining than just um, giving a defense speech, uh, you know. And so yeah, and it's uh, kind of interesting because it's all from his perspective. So is is Hadrian um, like how warped is his perspective, right? How how biased is he? Um, like does he have like he obviously has. Um, a viewpoint right so you can't 
you can't factor that out when you're listening to it. He's not a neutral party in this. It's it's really interesting. So it's like, yeah, I blew up I blew up the sun, you know, basically committed genocide, but it ended the war. So that was good, right? Uh, but it's also not good that it happened. And it yeah, so he leaves it up. I mean, obviously you're not even done writing the series yet, but um or I mean you might be. It just hasn't been published. No, yet. I'm not. <laughs> I, wish. I guess I shouldn't have seen it, but uh <laughs> yeah um so it's a really cool premise um and um yeah so you have this um so you have this the empire like the soul the solar empire um and it has all of these like uh it's imagery of um knights and um kings and, and princes and, and uh, aristocracy and the peasant class you know you have this like this um, hierarchical kind of society and a lot of that pulls from and the people in that society kind of draw this identity from these older stories like of Arthur and the um, and El Cid you know and all of these these legends and stories from Earth's past that they kind of appropriate right, and cultures too right they're yeah. very Roman uh, yeah. they're very Byzantine but they've got some elements too like Imperial China and, right. uh, and things like that as well yeah right um, yeah um so, you so speak to that, I guess. Um, <laughs> that's a, yeah. such a vague question, yeah, but so, like, <laughs> uh, of course, uh, like none of that's revolutionary, right? I'm far yeah. from the, the first person who've done anything like this, right? Um, but what I what I do think makes it a little bit different in my setting is that it's all very self conscious. Yeah, or it was. Uh, there's a great uh, a piece one of my readers wrote, I think, on his like medium account or something um, that was about how uh, about how the setting was basically a LARP gone too far, right? Because uh, what had happened, right? And this is one of the one of the bits of um, uh, of the story that I owe, you know, to to, to Frank Herbert, right? Because in a lot of ways, the other thing that should be said about the series is it's kind of a response to Dune. Mm -hmm. right um i love dune it's uh it's one of even though tolkien didn't right um it's uh it's one of my favorite science fiction novels um and uh but i've always disagreed with it pretty deeply you know Mm -hmm. if you talk to a lot of dune fans uh they like the first book but they start to drop out in book two pretty quickly and by book four they're almost all gone uh and this is um you know, without even getting to the prequels and the spinoffs and things yeah. like that. And I've always thought it's because that people didn't like watching their hero from book one um, turn into the bad guy. And for reasons that aren't very much uh, on the page in the mm. series, right? It's We're, we're told that, that Paul Atreides turns into this, you know, uh, uh, space gang is con, but we don't see any of the battlefields, right? Yeah. We don't feel any of the... Um, you know the the heat of those battles right it's just yeah uh, book two is starting and uh paul is kind of the bad guy now uh you know please keep up and <laughs> that was very jarring to me as a kid yeah um it, it does it does work but i think a lot of people um lose uh you know patience with the dune series because of that yeah and i never really liked it either because i liked paul right especially in book one he never does anything wrong exactly right. uh at least dramatically speaking right he um tries to get revenge on these people who hurt his family and uh you know broadly succeeds at doing that and you know becomes king of the universe and that's all very cool right <laughs> uh you know good for him and um, <laughs> and and so i but of course, you go and see Frank Herbert talk about heroes, and you read the epigrams in Dune, mm-hmm. and he's talking about the dangers of charismatic leaders. And it's uh, all well and good to say, hey, you know, uh, the great men of history 
uh, you know, are dangerous, right? Like Alexander is dangerous, right? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, mostly to Alexander, but you know, that's, uh, you know, <laughs> that's another <laughs> thing. And, uh, you know, all of these people are dangerous, but like, that doesn't change the fact that people need them, right? Like yeah. people need heroes and we used to need them in like a very immediate, like material sense. We like, we need an Alexander to, you know, uh, protect our interests, right? right. Uh, as the citizens of uh, you know Macedonia, right? Mm-hmm. We needed a, uh, a Caesar or a Hadrian or a Trajan or whoever right. to keep the barbarians back, right? right? And it's very easy to say, you know, all these people are dangerous and they're kind of monsters now, but that's because the world hasn't really had a need for that kind of extraordinary historic heroism in a while. Uh, in fact, we've been kind of actively selecting against it, yeah. um, which is, um, which is uh, again, another conversation. And so I wanted to say, okay, Frank, I hear your criticisms and I want to tell a story about a great hero that people need anyway, right? Yeah. Regardless of how catastrophic he may be. Um, and so I've gone on a bit of a tangent, but to circle back, that was why I wanted to sort of root the uh, the story in Dune uh, mm-hmm. in, in, in in similar world building. So we've got, you know, your warring houses and your, uh, you know, your swords are back in fashion, that sort right. of thing, right? right. And, and, and all of that. And so for folks who like Dune, you'll recognize some pretty similar, you know, world building furniture, if mm-hmm. you will. Um, at least early on, because it begins to take some sharp turns. Um, and one of those familiar pieces of furniture is this injunction against uh, AI. Uh, it's nowhere near as radical as in Dune, right? Like there are, you know, like in Dune, everyone's wearing, you know, analog, you know, watches and stuff, right? Like it's, <laughs> right. it's which is pretty cool, but uh, but my universe is by no means quite that, uh, you know, anti-technology. But uh, you know, it better not be thinking for itself. Right. And that was because you know there was uh, in, in humanity's past people had used uh, AI and the AI had used people to um, to really make everyone's life miserable, yeah. right? And and um, and that things have gotten so bad that people decided never again. And so the the Empire, which is the largest civilization in the galaxy in these books, uh, very self consciously. Uh, has uh, sort of embraced their humanity, right? They're kind of, you know, hyper-reactionary in this Mm -hmm. sense. And they've picked up a bunch of these old traditional uh, offices and institutions, uh, fashion, music, sports, whatever, right? Gladiators are back to, you know, that sort of thing, right? Because they want to be, air quotes, authentically human, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And it's gone on for so long, you know, several millennia, that no one really remembers that, a lot of these bits of uh, of culture have been brought in inorganically and, and sort of put in place, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's the, it's the clocks run long enough that they kind of sort of you know there's a layer of dust over everything. Nobody realizes the furniture was just sort of slammed into the room. Yeah, it was kind of artificially constructed from bits of other cultures, um, which I yeah, it's really. Uh, but they they did it because this can lead to the imperial religion um which i think is absolutely fascinating um the chantry the, sh- the chantry the chantry chantry yeah okay um and it, so yeah this this imperial religion that their main job i think from my from what i understand their main job is to prevent people from like as what they, as they say perverting the flesh you know like implanting 
um, technology, like merging man and machine and like cloning and like all these things, pretty much every other sin is permitted (laughs) in their religion. That's what it seems like, you know, but like they really are against this sort of, um, transhuman idea that, you know, we're kind of dealing with now of man and machine, man and animal merging together and creating something quote unquote better. Um, so the Chantry has some, they have some good points, you know, <laughs> but they're also kind of terrible in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, so yes. Um, and you, I, I think you said it in another podcast where you started off writing this series and the Chantry was going to be this kind of ham fisted critique of Catholicism. Is that right? Not specifically. Oh, okay. It was, it was supposed to be just this sort of, when I started writing, because we can get into where I was when I started writing, mm-hmm. it was just sort of a straw man, evil fantasy religion. Language. <laughs> uh, there are entirely too many of. Yeah. Uh, and it was, uh, yeah, it was just sort of conceived of that way. Of course, it's like I said, right? Like the Empire's culture is built very, uh, very cynically, right? Like they knew what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Um uh, for whatever reason, it was it was easy enough to centralize those decisions early on in history. I don't yeah. want to explain the, you know, all of the secrets, right? But it was it was possible for them to do this in, in a way um, that uh, I think is I think works on the page. Mm-hmm. But it was it was all pretty cynically done, right? And that that applies to the Chantry's sort of religious teachings as well. Uh, you know, they crib a bunch of you know theology from different places and swish it together and yeah. you know put a new coat of paint on it uh and they know that they made it up right, right. uh at least back in the day of course the people who are, are running the show at this point mostly don't really know that anymore either yeah. right but it was so it was what's that no, i just said it's been so long oh yeah since, yeah yeah it's been so long that they, they've lost track of that mm-hmm. um and when i started writing it like i said this was a ham-fisted uh uh, sort of goofy fantasy religion, but as uh, as things went on, uh, and I developed as a person because uh, mm-hmm. I was working on Empire of Silence in a pretty uh, radically changing period of my life, shall we say? Um, and we can get into that maybe a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Uh, I realized that it would be more interesting if it was that, in contrast to other things, right? <laughs> uh, because just doing that in a vacuum is uh, you know boring, right? Mm-hmm. And so. Contrasting that with, you know, a genuine faith, right? And the, the yeah. church makes a, a small appearance, right? But enough to uh, to make a, a counterpoint to all of this, right? right? And there are other characters who have uh, other other faiths too. The Zoroastrians made it to the future, you know. So there are a couple, <laughs> there are a couple of them yeah. uh, knocking about, and, and and they, you know, they they exist to to provide a little contrast here, yeah. uh, because. You know, maybe, uh, you know, some, uh, and I hesitate to use the phrase systems of control, but maybe some of those are cynical and, and fake, right? Mm-hmm. But maybe some of them aren't, and we need to figure out what those are, um, or even what parts of the cynical ones uh, are justified, right, yeah. or necessary. Uh, because I don't want anything to be very simple, right? right. This is something that um, has been increasingly central to. Uh, my thought process as a writer generally is is everyone these days is obsessed with like a gray morality, right? Like, oh, you know, like I love it when my heroes are bad guys, right? And, you know, they just always 
these miserable, you know, terrible people and everything. You know, really, the bad guys are just the good guys for the other team. It's not true, right? right? Like right. some people are just worse. Um, <laughs> some you know. people aren't good. <laughs> but the um, but the, the reality is, like even the worst people, you know, are also good sometimes or good in some ways yeah. or places, right? Um, you know. Uh, everyone's got you know, you know like like everyone's got Smeagol somewhere under all of that gall, mm-hmm. right? Uh, prone to making a lot of Lord of the Rings um, analogies. Uh, I'm sure this is the right crowd, but um, <laughs> this is not a Lord know. of the Rings podcast. This is not a Tolkien podcast. No, I'm, no, but I mean, there's a uh, lot of Catholic Tolkien podcasts out there. So <laughs> <laughs> that's true. There are, uh, and with good reason. Right? Yeah, I've, but yeah. Uh, you know. Uh, in any case, you know, everybody's got that little bit of Smeagol somewhere. Yep. And, and so, like, I, I, I tend to think of, of the moral landscape in my books as, like, hyper-laminated, right? It's not gray, but it's, like, you know, a stripe of white and then a stripe of black and white, black, white, black. Until yeah. if you step far enough back, you're like, ooh, that's gray. But if you, like, really get into it, no, no, right? Because that's, that's the way the world is, right? right? Like, it's very hard to do anything without... Uh, you know, doing something bad, even as a second order consequence, Lord knows you can barely buy a t-shirt without, you know, encouraging slavery in Bangladesh. Um, You know, like it's a difficult world to act in. And I try to keep a a focus on that with my characters too, right? They may be doing good things for the right reasons, but there will be, you know, um, you know, second order consequences or even Mm -hmm. first order consequences that are bad, right? And that's, sort of the whole point of the of the series right we're talking about hadrian's war crimes right like the alternative is humanity not existing anymore um in a a very serious and 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 present way um and it's it's very difficult right like um when you are facing someone who's got a a gun not to fire yourself if you can Right. right and maybe you should fire right but you are still doing something that is bad on the face of it, right? right. Killing someone is, is not good. But dealing with these questions is something literature is very, very well equipped to, you know, to do. And so I, I try to keep stuff like that in mind. And, and so dealing with um, these religious institutions, fake or otherwise, yeah. uh, in the story, right? The, the Chantry is very fake. Um, <laughs> you know, they still are trying to keep things at bay that are much worse, right? As the right. series goes on. Yeah. Uh, we get a look at... There's, there are worse yeah. things in the Chantry, you know? <laughs> yeah, we, we get a look at, like, what it's like, uh, you know, if people do uh, start messing with AI yeah. or they start to uh, replace too much of themselves with technology or, or uh, do other things like cloning. Cloning is a big, bad idea. Right. Uh, you know, and, and all sorts of things. Yeah, and, you, and, yeah you can get yeah. all that in your series. Um, so what changed? I mean, obviously, I mean... I don't think it's a secret. It says it on your Wikipedia page that you are a Roman Catholic. Um, yeah. we, just, we talked about that earlier. Um, yeah, and, and yeah. I was, and so I was born, but there was uh, a bit of an awkward phase, uh, mm-hmm. as there are, as there is for uh, so many, so many of us. Um, you know, particularly, I would think in in, in like the U.S. Um, yeah, man, I suppose. In Europe no, me as too. Well. You know. But yeah, same, same uh, it's, uh, I, I I hate to use the word normal, but uh, you know it's becoming so. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, and, and so I guess the short version is this. Um, when I was in eighth grade, a bunch of people in my family started dying. All of my grandparents died um, in the same year. Uh, I lost a couple other people as well. Uh, and that was very hard, 
uh, you know, when you're, what, 13, 14, to yeah. deal with that sort of thing. And on top of that, I went from uh, Catholic school to public school for high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was very difficult for all sorts of other reasons. And I was just very, uh, very out of place. And um, and uh, I, I could not be bothered, I guess, is the phrase, uh, to go to CCD, right? And mm-hmm. things like that. And I... Uh, um, I just dropped off. Um, and, uh, and I don't know if it's to my parents credit or discredit. They didn't, they, they fought me a little bit about it, but they, they let me be, I, I think it's worked out. So I mm-hmm. think it's to their credit. Cause I think if they pushed harder, um, yeah. that it could have gotten a lot worse because by college, man, it, it was, it was pretty bad. By college, I was, I was a member of the secular student Alliance, <laughs> right. Uh, which, uh, you know, I, of did course, you have a fedora? Did you have a fedora? Uh, I, I had a fedora before that phase of my life because I liked Indiana Jones. Um, there you go. Okay, that's a good reason. All right. You know. You're not just uh, you know, neck yeah, beard and fedora. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Um, no, but I, I still do wear long coats. Um, that's okay. We'll forgive you. Yeah, me. you know, that's 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 probably cool, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh but uh, but I joined Secular Student Alliance, which I of course did because I wanted some kind of community, which yeah. that was that didn't work out, mm. uh, you know. Um, and then I ended up, um, it, it, you know, I like I, I met Richard Dawkins, right? You know, through all this, came to the school and things like that. So like to paint a picture of the sort of place I was in, yeah, uh, you know, uh, yeah, you know, had dinner with Richard Dawkins, not one to one or anything, but wow. that was a uh, that was uh, that was a thing. Um, uh, and um, and so I ended up leaving them though uh, when they and this is this is one of those things that like it, it doesn't seem like it should be as big a deal but it really bothered me they were all in their Facebook group making fun of a bunch of these and I can't remember the exact nature of the story but it was these uh, high school students student athletes who were you know part of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes who yeah. got suspended for praying in school <laughs> and they were like ooh wrecked right we got you. And like you were a bunch of like grownups because there were like professors in this group, right? Oh. And, and grad students who were like, Ooh, wow. got you. And like, you guys have made a lot of noise in the past several years. And I believed you about being, you know, the morally superior class here. <laughs> and you're bullying children in absentia, really? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. It, I, and I told them as much, you know, like, this is ridiculous. And if you are better, act like it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, I quit and I, you know, immediately, uh, like the same, like 30 minutes, I, I quit and I like broke off my membership and made sure I wasn't giving them any more money. And, um, you know, and then I lost a couple friends in the ensuing weeks over that, but mm-hmm. you know, like bullying kids is like, it's like, it's barely acceptable if you're another kid, right? Yeah. But, well, you know, I, and I, I made fun of the seculars with their fedoras. I shouldn't do that. You know, I feel bad now. Well, <laughs> well you know, we can make fun of the platonic, you know, fedora yeah. man meme, yeah. right? Like, I was like that too. But, I mean, I'm not, I, I shouldn't yeah, make fun, you know. I'm, it's it's a shame, right? Because it is a good hat, um, you know, but I don't know that the, uh, the 1920s are coming back, right? It's a, it's a um, hat. You know, um, but, uh, <laughs> and, um, and so uh, at that point, I was I was sort of calling myself agnostic, I mm-hmm. suppose. And that was when I was really, really getting into uh, into writing because this was also approaching the back half of college. And my plan uh, was to get an agent before I graduated, which actually happened. Oh, nice. Um, 
which was uh which i don't recommend um <laughs> you know uh because my my plan was something like oh i'll um write a book and uh this whole waiting tables thing will you know cover me in the meantime and that was uh that was very foolish but i was uh, very fortunate yeah uh in that it in that it worked out because um i uh, i got the book written um this would be in 2016 uh 2015 no 2015 mm-hmm. Uh, I got the book written, got an agent in November, and then January 2016, I graduated in December, and then in January, I sold the book. Um, but that was um, that was a very interesting time for me, too, because it was um, around that time that the whole Jordan Peterson thing, yeah. Jordan Peterson thing happened. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I uh, lost my, uh, my words for a second. Because uh, I was sort of ground floor with him. It wasn't even the Kathy Newman thing I was, I was in before then. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and I, I went through like every lecture, like mm-hmm. actually every lecture that he had on this channel. And there was a time basically up until he got sick and dropped off the face of the earth where mm-hmm. I was listening to everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I was, I, yeah, I, me too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just, I thought he was great. And, um, you know, and, and so I listened to, to everything that he did. Right. Uh, I thought Maps of Meaning was great, but I really liked the Genesis series that he did because Genesis mm-hmm is probably the part of scripture that gets most memed on by people who uh who don't you know who don't read it right Right. um and it's not like you know like like this sort of uh the the person that that richard dawkins is debating is a is a 14 year old right yeah uh whose parents went to to you know like liberty u um you know, and and they they go to the the Ark experience for summer vacation, right? right like, yeah, yeah. like there's been a long tradition of you know, like Augustine doesn't take Genesis the way that like a lot of American evangelicals take Genesis, right? right? Like, right. and there are Jewish writers who don't take it. Uh, you know, I hate to say it, to take it allegorically because allegory is is too poor a word, right? But they. Yeah. they took it symbolically they took it non you know non-literally like right. and there's a, a bit where i think it's peterson talking about that the 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 fundamentalist claim for the creation story is fundamentally a scientific one and yep. the hypothesis just doesn't bear out right yep. it's a very materialist materialistic. like yep. yeah the fossil record is going to show uh you know on the first day like that's not right you know that's not how like, like that again, is not so what genesis people, like, is doing we need to stop not, it's not <laughs> what it's for right? right and you know and of course they've got issues with you know adam and eve mm-hmm. um and their relationship and and original sin is an idea because of course people are are you know wonderful blank slates don't you know <laughs> um and you can do whatever you want with them um you know, and they and they don't like Noah and the floods. And of course, yeah. once you get to like Abraham, they just they stop reading. Um, <laughs> you know, the Wikipedia article, and um, and, yeah, and right, so not even the Bible, to, just the Wikipedia article. <laughs> yeah, of course not. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and um, <laughs> I'm being a little too acerbic, probably, but uh, you know, it's, That's fine, it's late. Uh, um, but. Uh, but to, to have the the book explicated in um, in, in the way that Peterson did, right? Mm-hmm. To have Genesis explicated in this way, which wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't uh, scientific's not the right word, right? It wasn't doing the sort of like fundamentalist materialist thing. Yeah. But it also wasn't being, um, you know, uh, very religious. Was exactly the sort of threshold take mm-hmm. that I needed to hear. 
And, and so that got me, you know, and of course, midway through, he starts talking to Jonathan Paggio right. and doing like pre-lectures, right? And um, I love Jonathan Paggio's channel mm -hmm. and Jonathan's great. I, I got to talk to him about heavy metal, which was very, very fun yep. talk. Yep. Um, and uh, he actually let me uh, preview his uh, St. Christopher graphic novel. Oh, really? He's oh, got cool. work. It's really great. Uh, folks should check it out. It's called uh, God's Dog. Nice. Um, and uh, and and actually, the Pajo thing about St. Christopher really got to me because, of course, it's my name, right? Yep. And yep. and he, my he son's has name a great. Too. Yeah. Yeah. He has a great. Um, he has a great video about the St. Christopher story and about because I hadn't heard the whole one. Like everyone knows the he carried Jesus across the river part, right? Because yep. we've all got the medals in our car. Um, but the, there's an earlier bit, and I don't know if this is more of uh, an exclusively Eastern Orthodox thing or not, but where um, St. Christopher, who is sometimes depicted basically as a werewolf, which is kind of cool, is yeah. a, a cynocephalus, right? Uh, but he, he goes around the world trying to serve, uh, you know, the highest power he could find, right? Yeah. So he serves king after king, the emperor, uh, then he learns the emperor is afraid of the devil, right? So he yeah. seeks the devil out, who in the story I imagine is as Ganondorf, because he's you know, just described as this, um, you know, like desert warlord. Right. Uh, and I'm a big Legend of Zelda fan, so yeah. my brain immediately is like, "Oh, this is. <laughs> I need this. I need this movie, right?" Um, and uh, and then he eventually leaves the devil to uh, to go worship uh, Christ or to try and find Christ, mm -hmm. uh, because he learns that, of course, he's afraid of, of of Christ, right? And and he can't find him because, of course, this is after uh, Jesus is. Uh, come gone right uh sometime in the first few centuries mm -hmm. uh, according to the story and uh, he finds an old man uh who you know very uh very herman hesse's siddhartha suggests that uh he um you know maybe uh you know try to pray right it's like i'm praying nah. you know fasting no i'm not doing that either but then the the sage the you know the this, this saint is like well maybe you know carry people across the river and you can serve god in that way and he's like ah oh, that i can do right yeah, you're big and then, strong yeah you can carry people across the river yeah then yeah exactly you know like uh you know i can at least do that right and and there's something about that that really spoke to me too and, mm -hmm. and that that really got me sort of moving back uh home so yeah. to speak and, yeah. and that's been a long process right my uh my wife when i started dating her was sort of a lapsed baptist mm -hmm. and she um called she she was uh in miami for uh, grad student work and she had no friends basically she's in the lab all the time yeah and she was and she's very extroverted so this was a very very hard thing for her a uh, very hard situation, you know, another state, no friends, yeah. uh, working all the time. And she's like, there's a Catholic church on campus. I'm thinking I'm just going to go, right? And <laughs> she knew that I was like a, you know, sort of a lapsed Catholic. She's like, well, that, is that like weird for you? And I'm like, no, like, fine. So she calls them and the RCIA meeting is that night. So she's like, oh, I'm going to go, right? <laughs> and so that just started and I had to explain to her parents that, you know, like, don't worship statues, right? right? One, two, this is not my idea, right? This is all her. <laughs> and, you know, maybe there's some other help, but it was not me. Right. Um, I did not do this. Uh, please don't be mad at me, future father-in-law. <laughs> and um, and they've been very good about it. But that was the whole thing. And, um, and, and, and so her journey helped sort of pull me along, which is, you know, um, which is good. And it's kind of, you know, that's kind of how it happens. Uh, I think in a lot of, a lot of cases, um, you know, um, even, you know, uh, you, you know, even, even in scripture, right. You know, uh, the guys are too busy being depressed in the upper room. 
<laughs> yeah. You know, so wow. I, um, yeah, so I, I owe Jenna a lot. Um, you know, um, it's been, uh, it's been a long sort of way back and I, I wouldn't say that, I, you know, that it's done either. Right. Like it's yeah. nothing's ever finished. And, uh, and so it's been, uh, it's been a long sort of, uh, struggle back uphill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, uh, well, that's pretty similar to my story. I won't get into it, but, uh, it's, it's pretty similar. Um, it's often, it's often the women that get the men to turn their head to the right direction, right? Or even the wrong direction. Yeah. But it's it's yeah, it's usually no. that's usually how it works is the, the the girlfriend, the wife converts first and or you know, starts practicing their faith more fervently and then the husband eventually joins. You know, it's kind of how and then the whole then the whole household kind of goes. Um yeah, so uh, how has your reversion affected your writing, your storytelling? Well, we we touched a little bit on how I realized I was being ham fisted with the um, the state religion, right? And so the most immediate sort of impact there was was to fix that, right? Yeah. And it was something actually to fix in in uh, revision because the book had sold at that point, um, and so wow. it was something that got changed very very late uh, mm-hmm. to be made more explicit. But I also had to completely basically uh, rewrite the first book after I'd sold it too. When I sold it, it was half as long. Mm-hmm. Um, and my first editor, uh, you know, bless her, was like, I love it, but I have two problems with it. And they were very fundamental world building issues. And I decided it was basically easier to rewrite the whole thing than yeah. try to fix it. Because okay. trying to edit line for line is annoying. I'm doing it right now for book four. And it's my least favorite part of the process. Because I'm such a, a linear thinker that to go back and say, hang on, if I change this here, is there something earlier I have to fix too, or is yeah, it later? Right. And like, did I am I forgetting about anything? The constant sense of like, oh, you've forgotten a uh, uh, niggling detail somewhere yeah. is uh, haunting, and I don't like it. So it's the worst part of the process. I decided to rewrite the whole thing, and I actually rewrote uh, Empire of Silence basically from like chapter fifteen on uh, in about three months because oh, I didn't have a lot of time. Yeah, and. Um, after which that editor promptly uh, resigned and my book got put on a shelf for two years wow. uh, or a year and a half, which is actually not uncommon in yeah. publishing. Um, How long did it was, no. Empire of Silence was, came out in 2018? Is that right? 18, but I sold it in January 2016. Okay. Um, which is by no means the longest wait that I've ever heard of in traditional publishing. Um, yeah. Uh, it's just, it it's difficult. There's only so many people who work in those offices and they're always stretched thin. Um, yeah. Those companies are all smaller than people think they are. Uh, <laughs> Bane Books, where I worked, had eight people, I think, on a full time. Oh, um, wow. Really? Yeah. Um, a lot of it, like the copy editors all went freelance, but oh, the like core editorial marketing staff is very, very small. Hmm. Um, we're talking like the nucleus of a hydrogen atom, right? Like relative to the whole <laughs> uh, whole space. Right. Um, and people only, of course, ever see the authors, right? So they they assume this big, you know, um, you know, Madison Square, not, not a Rockefeller Center, where a lot of publishers are, right? Simon Schuster's there. They imagine this big Rockefeller Center, um, you know, um, skyscraper full of uh, office drones, and like, no, it's it's me. Um, <laughs> right. you know, I am one. the marketing department. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, so um, you know that that. that it happens all the time, these sort of slowdowns. Yeah. But um, to get back to the question, mm-hmm. um, that specific world building thing was first. But the general principle here, which was that I had set up something originally that was too simplistic 
right? That needed to be challenged, that needed to be counterbalanced, that needed to be um, complicated. Yeah. Um, was a general principle that became sort of central and increasingly important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, to the point where sometimes Hadrian feels more like Hamlet, where he's like, if I do this, then this will happen. And then that will happen, which will balance it back out a little bit. But then if I kill Claudius while he's praying, he'll go to heaven. And I can't have that, so I can't kill him now. And there's a lot of, <laughs> of sort of the like back and forth moralizing is a consequence maybe of this sort of um, hyper-articulated need to... Um, to 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 give uh, I guess give the devil his due right uh, to uh, <laughs> to turn a phrase, um, but I, I you know when when this is the sort of thing that bothers a lot of people when they when they read books, especially that bothers uh, that bothers me when I read if if nowadays if religion is not handled um, the way that a religious person would handle it, why is it in a book right? Like, yeah. Um, it's like, it's like when someone who's not an engineer tries to describe an engineering problem, it's just, it's very, it's very upsetting. I tried to watch the foundation show and I'd forgotten how, um, special Asimov was on the subject of, um, <laughs> uh, of belief. And it was, <laughs> except for the big earth of the new sun reference that they added that wasn't in the books. Uh, I was not having a good time. Um, and actually, that's not fair. The special effects are amazing, yeah. um, and Lee Pace is always good in anything. But um, you know, I was—I uh, I had to stop watching it. It was mm. frustrating me yeah. because this sort of thing sticks out, right? If you if you know better, and, and thank God I know a bit better now. Right. Um, right. You know, so yeah, it makes the it makes because the chant the chant is really interesting because they have a good point, right? They're there for a specific purpose, and it's to prevent. Um, this artificial intelligence from emerging again. And it, the first time it did was, um, was terrible. Right. So they're, they exist for that purpose, but they also are a fake religion and you, right. and there are a lot of problems with that, you know, um, one of which is what happens when people find out, you know? Um, I mean, I'm not saying that's, that's what happens or going to happen in your book, but um, you know, when, when the noble lie is gone. Right. And then you have the Catholic church as kind of um it shows up uh, heavily in the, the Lesser Devil, which is a really good. Um, and the Catholic Church exists, you know, as a separate, um, you know, as its own distinct thing in in your universe, right. which kind of makes you know, if someone says, "Well, the Chantry is just a just the Catholic Church," and I was like, "Well, actually, the Catholic Church is right here. Now, here it is." It's, and they're not happy about the Chantry. No, um, because this. No. What I really like about the Chantry is that Why they, take, they, be? they take um, bits of other religions and like squish them together, right? So. Um, right. Yeah, and they, they kind of have this veneer of like um, they is that they, they worship the four, the cardinal virtues, right? They is that the the yes, icons, so, the cardinal virtues. <laughs> so so they're floating around and they're still yeah. yeah. The, one of the things the chantry does right because the chantry's primary uh, again air quotes deity is earth itself. Yes, right because yeah. the earth the earth is gone. Um, they know where it is, but nobody lives there anymore mm-hmm. uh, because as a consequence of dealing with the AI, they had to wipe it out. Yeah. Right. Uh, they had to they had to nuke the earth, and this was sixteen thousand years ago. Um, and um, and so uh, they worship sort of the idea of earth, right? Which is the idea basically of the sort of promised homeland that they can all one day return to, maybe, right? right. Um, but of course, like practically speaking, that's not going to happen. There are way too many people that can ever fit on it. But right. you know, that's a, another issue. Um, and, and, but they have this very sort of um, 
uh, sort of environmentalist sort of rhetorical bent, right? Yeah, they're like they're um, they're basically earth worshippers. I mean, and then right. they have this like sort of pay, this like quasi pagan. Um, I don't know how to say it, like like belief system, if that's the right phrase, but they, cause they have all these icons to different like virtues, yes. like prudence and like fortitude right. uh, and like beauty and like the transcendentals are in there too. Right. So you have like beauty is one of the, like, one of these deities, you know? And um, yeah. So the rest know. of their deities, right. The, the, the other one deserves special exception is the first emperor is also deified. Yeah, he's yeah. the one who dealt with the machines, right? right? So he has a special role and the current emperor as sort of a, uh, sort of pharaonic reincarnation of the first, yeah, right? In sort of, in not the not literally; of... they're not clones or anything like right. a Foundation show. Um, which that was that was cool too, actually, in the show. But um, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll give them that. It's not from the books, uh, but I liked it. Uh, but the uh, the subsequent emperors are just the descendants of the first emperor, yeah, uh, who have sort of a ceremonial role as sort of a living god, right? Yeah, uh, which is of course very Roman, right? Post, uh, you know, post Augustus, right? Um. But the rest of the uh, sort of, uh, I guess, principalities, you might say, mm-hmm. that they uh, that the, the chantry worships, or they have more in common with the the Greek uh, uh, daimons, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the sort of embodiment of uh, of justice, yes, right. of uh, of prudence, temperance, uh, fortitude, right? Those are the, the so they've obviously cribbed the the cardinal virtues, as you say, mm-hmm. but also of uh, of just different things, right? So. Uh, uh, fury, right? Uh, mm-hmm. It's mentioned a couple times, but also just natural phenomena like time, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, and evolution appears as mm. sort of an icon that they worship, and they'll they'll light candles and make sacrifices to them, yeah, uh, in uh, in in temples and things as well. And they and they sort of imagine them as as the Greeks did as sort of personified abstract forces, right? Yeah. And most people don't believe in them as like literal, like oh, I can actually meet death right right but they recognize that's a symbolic representation of the idea of death uh you know and they'll still you know make sacrifices to death to ward off death right as, sure. as the pagans would do because they are very greco-roman pagan in in, in that yep. sense or we're into european pagan really uh, yeah it's really interesting there's some Hindu elements too in the way that like the sacrifices are done and stuff that yeah. I actually haven't had a lot of time to focus on in the writing but it is there yeah um, um and so in in your in your series uh Hadrian he comes from Megia how do you say the planet's name uh Medua is the Medua. town the uh, town oh i'm sorry planet- yeah, the it's okay. Uh, <laughs> there's too many names thrown around anyway. The town is Nadwa, okay. uh, but the planet is Delos. Delos, uh, as thank in the, you. Yeah, the Greek island where uh, Apollo is from. Um, you know, uh, yeah. he was born on one okay. of Delos. Of course, he brings the sun, right? So right, yeah. It's uh, a little bit of a joke there. <laughs> um, so he comes from this family um, that their their image is um, a devil figure on a pentagram. Right. Um, yes. Yeah. And your, I, I just had this thought yesterday. I'm like you have a lot of devil imagery in the series, like a lot of it. Yes. Um, and yes. You have it in so in his family. Um, and um, if I could read a, just a couple of, just a quote. Um, I think this is yeah here. This is from Demon in White. Um, the violet shouts of plasma fire answer her more blue in the alien air than I'd ever seen sulfur in the air. If I remember my chemistry, I fancied I could smell sulfur, even though, even through the suit, the brimstone stench of hell. So like, and this, this comes up all the time. And I just, it just clicked yesterday. Um, that 
you know, he's got his family emblem is basically a devil. And um, in book two, I mean, there's going to be spoilers, whatever. Um, when he goes to the like the hidden planet of Rogosas with um, Karn Sagara, who we were talking about this through Facebook. Um, he kind of lives in this. He's like he's like the the Satan like Dante's Satan you know um, or like yeah. uh, Milton's Satan and he's like a combination of both and he is is this we think immobile ruler who lives at the bottom of this um, pyramid you know like the bottom of the hierarchy and in this inverted pyramid and it, it, all these like Edenic sort of imagery on this planet and um, he's kind of a Satan figure right so. Um, and then <laughs> another another thing I noticed was the Cielsen themselves um, were they they kind of remind me of demons, right? And they're yeah. you you kind of link you, you explicitly call them demons like several times, I think. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily a rhetorical. I mean, they're they're hermaphroditic, um, and so they don't have like distinct sexes. They're kind of sexless, which is right, um, yeah. which is. Angels and demons are also—they're not hermaphroditic, but they're—they don't have like a distinct sex. They're not—that's not, that's not right. part of their their being. Because um, that comes with having a body. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And they're. Um, let's see. I have something. Yeah. Um, the Cielsen were undeterred. This is also from Demon and White. Their berserkers fought with little contempt, with little concept uh, concept for their individual lives. And why shouldn't they? They were slaves, body and soul, servants to whichever prince they called their master. And that master had ordered them to fight. There was no room for disobedience in the common Cielsen soldier. No free will. They abdicated free will to their commanders, who were in turn the slaves of commanders greater still, until all served at the behest of an Ieta prince, who alone was free and a god and all but truth. And that's um, so you have, and they live in like these giant, these giant like city planets that, um, um, and they kind of live like insects. Like they, they shun the light. They, so you have all of these like, all this devil imagery. Yes, and yeah, it's everywhere. It's everywhere in there, and I just it just clicked yesterday, and if Hadrian constantly going, yeah, I deserve to burn. Like I deserve to burn for for what I did. Um, and so, and I'll just say one more thing. Hadrian Marlowe, his last name is Marlowe. Um, Christopher, I that. yeah, I did notice that Christopher Marlowe was a playwright, I think, a contemporary of Shakespeare, and he wrote yeah, a play, Doctor Faustus who makes a yep. deal with the devil. Um, so that clicked yesterday too. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is, this is deliberate. Come on, man. This is deliberate. It's, it's incredibly deliberate. <laughs> and I actually worried it was layered on too thick. So if it's just coming to you now, that's good. Uh, yeah. you know, maybe it was all the things it building up. I'm like, okay, this is, this is deliberate. Like he's, maybe, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it started out as a really stupid joke because I was an edgy teenager when I started putting all this together. Right. right. And that is that my name is Christopher. Right. right. And Marla's name is Christopher. So the Solon, the great families of the Solon empire, uh, almost, uh, almost all claim some mythic historical ancestor. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, very few of which are genuine. Um, and House Marlowe pretends to be, claims to be descended from Christopher Marlowe, which is impossible. He had no children, uh, <laughs> and he was he was very, very, uh, very probably uh, homosexual. Um, and um, in any case, he was also probably a spy, uh, and he got murdered in a bar fight, which is very cool. Uh, very interesting stuff. <laughs> it might have been working for Spain. Yeah. Um, and uh, really interesting, interesting figure. And he was. He was a friend of Shakespeare's. Yeah. And his death actually really, really 
rattling Shakespeare. I think it's in As You Like It. There's um, a character named Hero, which is a reference to one of his poems. Oh, okay. Um, I think it's As You Like It. It's been a long time. I used to know my Shakespeare a lot better than I do. It's one of those things like my Latin that's rotted uh, since I left school. Mm-hmm. And um, in any case, um, not a lot of famous people named Christopher. Um, and, um, <laughs> yeah. and so he was, the, he was the one I went to and I, it was just a joke because when I started writing, I was like seven years old, right? Yeah. And of course, when you're writing, when you're seven years old, the main character is you, right? Right. right. And so it was me that was going to uh, wizard school or to Tatooine <laughs> or Hyrule or wherever it was yeah. uh, that I was into at the time. I uh, spent a lot of time in middle earth, as you might imagine. <laughs> um, and, um, and, and I would write these, you know, on the back of my homework assignments, you know, the B side of all of my math notes was, was doodling and world building mm-hmm. nonsense. Cause I was trying to write since I was really, really small. Um, but the first main character was me. Right. And so to have a character's last name was Marlowe. It was of course referenced Christopher Marlowe, but it was this little note that I'd started out writing self insert fanfic when I was seven years old. Right? Yeah. Uh, and so it was a stupid little joke, but, uh, you know, one when you're writing, you want never to interrupt your subconscious when it's making a decision. Yeah. Um, because it's smarter than you are. Um, you know, not to act like it's a totally separate organ, but it's sure. it's a part of your you know brain that's that's a little bit more sophisticated, I think, than the yeah. you know the prefrontal cortex uh, in a weird way. And so when all of these these sort of symbolic things started to click into place, because of course, like what you know, uh, formerly military, you know, family wouldn't use a scary monster as its, as its sigil, right? Right. Uh, you know, it's a, a perfectly reasonable choice. You know, you go, you go from there, right? Uh, all these things start to click into place. Um, and then I realized that, that what I was doing, and I didn't realize this until the revision process on book one was setting up a, you know, um, monster versus monsters sort of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Cause that's what gargoyles do, right? They keep the demons out of the church. Right. That is what St. Christopher does. Um, right. in a lot of Orthodox churches, they put the werewolf looking St. Christopher right in the door. And you have uh, that in lesser yeah. devil. I, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Brief, brief aside there. That's just because 20,000 years in the future, we've, of course, fixed our problems uh, in the church, uh, east and west, at least. Ah, nice. So there's a little Orthodox St. Christopher there at the door, just as a, a little... One of my one of my uh, very close friends is, uh, is, is Greek Orthodox, and mm-hmm. uh, and so sort of a... I, you know, I don't know if the, the feeling there is at least reciprocal, but it would be very nice if yep. uh, if that particular schism could be mended. Uh, I know, agree. Maybe, maybe one day, you know, yeah. we have... 20,000 years from now... <laughs> yeah, you know, I figure twenty thousand years from now, why not? Right? Yeah. You know, nobody can remember of, what the problem was anyway. Not long, yeah, you know, in the future. Yeah, what were we fighting way? about? Um, you know, um, you know. <laughs> anyway, so just a little bit of, I guess, uh, you know, uh, of, of 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 good, you know, developments. You yeah, know, put in, put into the book, but um, but yeah, it's what Saint Christopher does too, right? You know, he is a monster, mm-hmm. uh, at least monster superficially that keeps the the other monsters out, right? right. Um, and of course, you know that symbolic, you know, resonance wasn't lost on me either, yeah, right. Um, to to go back to the personal development part of the story, mm-hmm. and um. And so to have all this going on, right, Adrian is a character who does some pretty horrible things, um, you know, to try and save humankind, right? And like I said, you know, it's not a gray morality thing. It's a, it's hard to act 
um, you know, you know, at all without doing evil, right? Yeah, it really, really is. And so I don't want it to be motivation. Like, so I think with, I mean, obviously I haven't read the whole thing because none of it's been published, but with Hadrian, um, he truly loves the empire, right? I mean, even though he he knows it has a lot of problems, like a lot of problems, but he's, he's like, there's a point in book two where he starts off very hopeful and, and I'd say naive when he wants to make peace between the Cielsen and the humans. It's like, well, no one's ever tried this before. I'll be, the, I'll be the first one in 400 years to do this. And then they sit down and they get nowhere and it's, it's getting worse and worse. And they re- he slowly realizes that, you know, maybe these creatures are not capable of peace. You know, they're, they're, right. maybe they're not actually like, like us, you know, that have free will. Maybe, maybe they just aren't capable of it. You know, maybe they're just monsters. And, um, yeah, because as we touched on that a little bit earlier, too, and I think it got lost in the mix, mm-hmm. the Cielsen, um, like, like we said, they don't have uh, they don't have differentiated sexes, but right. they um, they have this sort of subordinating instinct. As soon as they are beaten, they belong to whichever one yeah. of them, right? Yeah. And, and, and so whole clans can flip ownership pretty easily right? right so they're all like i mean they're they're all capable of speech they you know they produce art and things like that yeah but their whole society hinges on on domination which is yeah. of course how certain Submission. modern theorists think uh human society works but the contrast here uh hopefully I should demonstrate that that's not how human beings work right uh you know but by showing you how it works with with uh with the aliens um and, and so that there's there's that element as well too right because like like the passage you read they don't have free will except their kings do which is a very pagan way of thinking yeah right? it is, you know yeah. like you know your average uh you know greek pagan was you know you might be enthused if you were angry it was because maybe Ares or or or, or kratos or something had you in his grip right mm-hmm. uh, but uh, and you make prayers to maybe keep the gods away from you but you would <laughs> You know, uh, but you were all subject to the fates anyway. It was very deterministic. The, yeah. For the Cielsen, that's true, basically. Right. right. Um, and except for their kings, who, of course, you know, when when someone actually in in Greco-Roman pagan society is so great that they change history, they must of course be a god, right? Right. Um, yeah. You know, or or a demigod, because like normal people, like they can't affect they can't affect the world in any meaningful way right. at all, right? It's very you know. They wouldn't have liked Lord of the Rings, um, you know. <laughs> no. And uh, so, of course, you know, Alexander must, of course, be the son of Zeus, right? right. Yeah. Um, you know, things like that. And, and the Cielsen think that way too. Yeah. Right? So their their princes are the ones who make the decisions, but not right. um, not not the lesser ones. So I just figured I should, uh, yeah, I guess expound on that for well, earlier. The, the whole submission domination thing. I'm just kind of thinking about this now. It, it, Another way they're kind of like demons is that they, um, that's kind of how demons kind of work, right? So, um, in before Christ came, right, the ancient Hebrew people, I think, I mean, someone might correct me on this, they had a a list of all these like names of demons. And then when someone was possessed, they would, um, invoke a stronger demon to come chase the, the lesser demon away, right? And what Christ did is he, he came and he did it under his own power. Um, and that's why they were like, whoa, what are you like, what's going on? How can you, how can you be doing this under your own power? Like, just that's like, you can't do that. Right. And so that's kind of what reminds me of the Cielsen is like one stronger will come in and dominate, you know, and then their, their word for, for peace is also submission. So they don't really have a word for peace, which I thought was interesting. Um, and so 
Hadrian kind of makes this decision, I guess. He makes this um, determination that, well, maybe we can't make peace with them. Maybe they're maybe they're just monsters, <laughs> you know. And I guess part of it is like, is he right? Are they are they really monsters? And a fun thing I wanted to do. Um, I have this book called Science Fiction and Catholicism. It came out a couple of years ago. And in there, it has a section on can aliens be baptized? And, um, and I'm going to ask you, I'm going to read off the requirements, what, what alien species are supposed to have by the Vatican, I, I guess, um, and if they're capable of baptism. And I'll see if you think the Cielsen will fit. I, I think okay. I know what my answer is. Um, so this is from uh, by Jim Clark, Science Fiction and Catholicism. Catholic thinking has, at this point, resolved the question of alien salvation down to a series of qualifications which would need to be posed in the event of extraterrestrial, extraterrestrial life being encountered. In order for an alien species to require the salvation of Christ, they would have to be intelligent. C.S. Lewis defined this quality as not merely the, f- the faculty to abstract and calculate, but the apprehension of values, the power to mean by good something more than good for me or even good for my species. Additionally, they would have to exist in a physical dimension. Energy-based beings, in other words, would have would not require salvation via incarnation as they themselves would not be incarnate. Some theologians have gone so far as to compare this speculative scenario with the concept of angels and even demons in terrestrial theology. Finally, such an alien species would need to be fallen, that is, in need of salvation. With this blueprint or methodology in place, the Catholic hierarchy is already prepared not only to theologically accommodate extraterrestrial intelligences, but also to interact with aliens and even consider baptizing them. So based on those things, so they need to be um, intelligent and they need to be capable of um, good, but something more than just good for me or good for my species. They need to be physical, which they are, and they need to be fallen, which I think they are. <laughs> they're, they're definitely, you know, not, they're not good. But uh, what do you think? Are they capable of salvation? Well, I don't want to answer that question, oh. right? You know, because um, it's. I'm sorry. I, I don't want to. I don't want to give anything away. That I was a surprise. Say, I didn't send you that. I didn't send you that question. I don't think. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, wanted to uh, I will say though, as a bit of a dodge, right? They're not the only aliens in in the series. Right. There, are, uh, sure. there are some other ones. The other alien species that appear are not as developed. They're basically uh, they never got off their own planets yet. Yeah. Um, so they're variously. You know, uh, you know, primitive or maybe medieval or, or whatever. We don't see that many of them because uh, they're very far flung. We're talking mm-hmm. covered about a third of the galactic volume. We found a couple dozen, right? Yeah. Um, and um, and there are perhaps reasons for that, but um, the other ones we see, right? The the way the way that I I, I talk about it is this, right? The Cielsen look roughly human. They've got you know they're humanoid. They've got the arms, the legs, you know, yeah. eyes in the right place, things like that. But they don't think like us. Right. Um, then there is another species, appears in Bukwani, Umand, who neither look nor think like us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we think they're intelligent, but, you know, are they? I'm not so sure. Uh, right. And because uh, it's just, it's too hard to know. And uh, and then there are uh, the Irtani, who show mm-hmm. up in book three, who are like bird people, so they don't look like people, uh, but they do kind of feel like people. Like yeah. They act like people. And so I obviously am open to the idea that there may be intelligent life on other planets that mm-hmm. is, um, you know, uh, that we, that, that is ensouled in the same way that we are, yeah. uh, and, and in, in need of the same, uh, the same salvation, <laughs> but, uh, but perhaps not all, uh-huh. uh, you know, you know, maybe some of the things out there, uh, cause you know, if it's, if it's intelligent in some way, but not good, it's not exactly, you know, a person. Right. Right. Um, 
Well, that's what I was, you know, when I read that. I'm like, okay, I don't think the Seattle are capable of baptism. I don't think they they, they may not be. Yeah, right. Uh, they may be yeah, basically demons, right? <laughs> but uh, but I will say may not be right. Got it. You know, yeah. maybe maybe you know we'll maybe. See, right? Um, oh man yeah i just thought that was a fun question i couldn't i couldn't resist um, it's a really good one and it's one to revisit after the last book i think sounds um, good so going um, back to like this the devil imagery um, yes yeah um, um so we kind of we talked about you know he had um he got the the crest of the devil on his um uniform and on his family sigil and all these yeah. other things um especially with like karn Sagara on, on um in the second book tons of references to eden and like but it's all like, in, like inverted right so it's all upside down uh literally like it's like literally upside down um right and karn's house is a very strange place yeah um and so why i think i can probably guess why um but it seems it is very deliberate and i'm guessing it's because marlo is named after you know the guy who wrote Dr. right Houses. well like i said he grew out of this dumb joke but as right. as as you start to think about uh, the choices that you've made as a writer, right? Because people think you have to like people imagine that the act of like plotting uh, or or you know brewing a book happens like instantaneously. Mm-hmm. But there are things like I'm revising my fourth book right now. I just sneaked a couple new paragraphs into a chapter that I was writing because I have a clearer idea of what's going to happen two books from now okay. that I want to make sure that I look like I've planned all along. And by the time you read it, it will look like I planned it all yeah, along. Yeah, yeah. Um, and sometimes too, like an errant detail that you, you will put down as like, uh, spontaneous, you know, world building, right? Mm-hmm. Cause, cause when I'll do something like list three planets or something, maybe I'll, I'll reuse two and I'll make up a third one, right? Yeah. And the third one will be new and it'll actually become important in some way. Right. Right. And that's very normal. Um, the Tolkien approach where you spend 50 years world building and then write two books is, um, commercially unviable right uh you know unless you're tolkien right and, and yeah. so an we have this guy. sense that we should emulate tolkien and we should in certain respects but uh not in in terms of his writing output i would not yeah. be able to eat if i if i uh... <laughs> well he had a full-time job yeah you know? yeah well it's true it's true um yeah. i used to um <laughs> now i just make up nonsense um <laughs> and um, and so anyway, to, to to the imagery, right? This stuff sort of grows, and there are uh, like when you read the bit about the um, plasma fire, just you know, smelling of sulfur, right? Mm-hmm. And the imagery there, that, that that was spontaneous. I think that's from a battle on a on a Cielsen ship, yeah. And, and so that their atmosphere would have a little bit more sulfur, and it, it's just me being symbolic, right? Yes. Uh, which it's still there, you know, this this like imagery, yeah. It's still, I don't know. I just yeah, it clicked last night and I got excited and I want to ask you about it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's all very much there on purpose. <laughs> yeah. It's it's just it's more incidental, right? The yeah. bigger stuff, right? Hadrian's sort of symbolic, uh, you know, association with evil uh, is because you know there's a bit of an inversion going on, right? Mm-hmm. And, and a question too, right? Is he the bad guy, right? right? Um, but the answer might be no, right? Um, because maybe we, you know, there's a there's a great line in Book of the New Song, I think it's in sort of the Lictor. Mm-hmm. where uh gene wolf says uh something like uh often an angel is only a devil that stands between us and our enemies right, right. and i think it's a really good line because yep. uh, of course you know the 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 distinction between michael and lucifer is, is a choice right yeah yeah um and and so th- that choice 
right, is incredibly important, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, that may be the, the biggest understatement in, in cosmic history, but, um, <laughs> you know, but it, but it is, it is a, ultimately like a, a pretty, uh, pretty small distinction, right? Like, yeah. it's not like they're, they're different in, 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 in substance or, 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 or uh, aptitude or right. know, capability. They're both angels. Like that. Right. And, and, and so too, right. The difference between a hero and a villain, uh, you know, not to, to, to go back to that silly canard about like, Oh, heroes only, you know, matter of perspective. Right. But um, it's a fine line, right. It is yeah. a fine line. Well, it's a man, like you said, it's a choice, right. So like it could, you could be heroic your entire life and make, you know, the wrong decision and it impacts everybody and it, in and a it negative way. Matter, you know? Right. Yeah. Or, or vice versa, right? Mm-hmm. You can do, you know, you can do some good things, and you know, or or you could be evil, right, yeah. and do one good thing, and, and then you know, like, oh, Gollum wasn't so bad, um, right? You know, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and that's and that's like I said, right? You know, you've got this hyper laminated sort of, yeah, you know, it's not great. The, the nature of morality is is this very hyper laminated thing. Nobody well, is, yeah, uh, you know, there is none righteous, too. right? Well, it's similar um, to what Gene Wolfe does too. He Somebody once said that um, he doesn't have gray characters. He has, he has their pastiches of like good and bad, right? So yep. they're, they're, I mean, that's what people are, right? We're, yeah. we're, <laughs> we sometimes do good things. We sometimes do bad things, but there, it doesn't mean that there's no such thing as good and bad, right? Or like evil and, and, and goodness. It's just, we're complicated and, and it's hard to tell sometimes who is the good guy and who's the bad guy, right? Yeah. And that line story, gets thinner, the, the, more far-reaching the consequences of your actions are, right? right? So if you are, uh, you know, an Alexander, right, yeah. then that line is very thin, right? And you've got to be very careful. But that that doesn't mean, you know, as Frank Herbert would have it, that you shouldn't have an Alexander. Right. right. You, you may need one. Well, like there and, are some Christians who, like um, with Alexander the Great, you know, it's, he he did a lot of good stuff, right? And then we the when the Christians came, we utilized a lot of the stuff he did, um, like Hellenizing most of the known world, you know, and, uh, the roads that he built. And, um, but I think, I think it might've been Jonathan Paggio who said roads can, you know, be good for missionaries and they can also be good for soldiers, you know? So it's like there, it goes both ways. So he could be, is Alexander the great a villain or is he a hero? It kind of depends on I mean, it's it depends like, not even on where you're standing. It depends yeah. on where and when you're standing. Right. right? Um, it's it, yeah, but but it, but too right. Like you know, Alexander's a really interesting case, right? Mm-hmm. Because he, depending on what period of history you're looking at, all of the books about him are going to be these wonderful pians, right? Or right. they're going to be incredibly negative. Right. right. This sort of modern scholarship on Alexander is like, oh, he's a proto Hitler. Like, yeah, no, he's not. Right. Like, um, you know, <laughs> yeah. that's that's not right. But he's also not this. What he's not the character of the Alexander romance, right? Like right. that is a work of fiction, uh, a very interesting work of fiction, or really genre uh, of fiction. Uh, but uh, you know, he's not that guy either. Right. right. Even Hadrian kind of hints, like, well, some people call me a monster. Some people call me a hero. You know. Um, and re- in reality, I'm just a man, basically. That's uh... right. Yeah, he, he doesn't really want to answer that question yeah. for himself either. I think um, he obviously has some memories he doesn't, uh, he can't live with, right? But some of those are things that happened to him. Yeah. Some of those are things that he did, right? And 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 to try and show the messiness there is part of it, right? Uh, and that, and that's really what makes the story. Because stories are about people. Yeah. Right. Um, 
you know, people, it's kind of a canard at this point. Everyone will say, you know, well, I like character driven stories. Like, it's, you know, that's most of them, right? <laughs> Science fiction has this, has this sense that, you know, like, oh, you need the plot or like the, the tech to drive it. And that's because for a long time you had John W. Campbell basically saying that's what science fiction had to be, right? Yeah. And, and before that, you had Gernsback marketing his magazine on the educational credentials of his writers, right? You know, like Doc, uh, Doc Smith had a degree in like something something crazy it was like bees or something i can't remember entomology uh, like okay like, yeah it was, it was entomology maybe it's don't funny. quote me on I'll that to look that up because I, I i'm an entomologist too so oh cool i didn't yeah. know that yeah uh, but yeah i think it was i think it might have been something like entomology or mm. like or, or agriculture or something but they passed him off as like a you know like a bill nye the science guy type funny. which of course you know bill nye is also you know sort of passed off as kind of a general science guy um and he's but, he's not <laughs> Yeah, he's, he's, a, he's an engineer, which is, you know, like, that's that's not nothing. He but children's like, show. He's, it was a very good show, but now, I don't know, now he's like a moral figure, which is just weird. I don't get it. Well, but, yeah, it is It is strange. But he, yeah, he's, you know, he's an engineer. He's not a, you know, he's not a, a, a physicist or right. a geologist or any of those things. And that's not to say you can't be conversant in that material. You know, I'm conversant in that material to a certain degree. But, right. you, know, any, you know, anybody can be conversant. But anyway, um... I digress. Um, as far as as far as the, the the devil symbolism goes, right? The the main thing is is precisely that that you know inversion, right? Yeah. You've got this this sort of monstrous figure, but there are like little details that grow out of it. Another one, right, is another play that uh, that Christopher Marlowe wrote is Tamerlan the Great, mm-hmm. right? Uh, which is about Timur, the uh, the uh, um, sort of Turkish, uh, the last of the great sort of um, you know medieval sort of Turkish warlords the modern you know modern era really really yeah. kicked in uh the prince of destruction they called him right uh and it's a cool play um and uh, that's of course where hadrian gets named for his ship uh mm. the tamerlane um oh, and so there's sure. another okay yeah yeah this other little <laughs> there's another little Marlowe like you know node right yeah um and well, so then, you've got all these yeah. little yeah, the, the, yeah, I, I like something. that kind of stuff it's it's it makes this makes the story seem it gives it Versalimitude, if I'm using that word correctly, you know, it just makes it seem grounded in something real. Like, um, Karn Sagara's ship is the Demiurge, you know, which is uh, something out of, like, a Neoplatonism and Gnosticism, which is, like, this deity that I don't remember, but it, like... It's it's the one that creates the universe, right? Uh, but it's the evil one that creates the yes, universe. Yes, yeah, yeah, it's the evil, yeah, and that's what Karn Sagar kind of styles himself as as this, right, this, and and he has a very Gnostic worldview too, yeah. right? Because what what Karn Karn's thing is he's lived forever by copying himself into new bodies, right? So he he believes that he has a solid division between uh, you know uh, his body and his and his spirit, and, right. and and Hadrian encounters a lot of these different you know cultures, be they alien or human, that have these very different ideas about what makes a person. Right. Uh, including his own, he doesn't agree with his own culture's, you know, estimation really of what makes a person. Because yeah. the empire's got a bit of the eugenics bent to it. Oh yeah, um, and he's and he's benefited from it. You know, yeah. he's going to live for a very long time, but uh, he is increasingly uh, uncomfortable with that. Right, because um, he's basically a synthetic human in many right. ways. Because they there are these uh, humans that are into they're intuses, right? They're yeah, they are the the product of basically procreation, but without the genetic like fiddling that makes their because like their their genomes are so 
complicated that they actually need imperial permission and then imperial like technology to get their genomes to work when they reproduce. Yeah, exactly. Right? So yeah. the the, uh, the upper class, the imperial nobility, the palatine, palace class, right, um, are um, the product of, of very uh, advanced, very uh, complicated genetic engineering. Yeah. And one of the features of that engineering, and it is from the perspective of imperial civilization, a feature and not a bug, uh, is that it's very hard to have children naturally. Right. Um, they almost always die and if they don't they have some serious problem yeah um you know they they will be uh, deformed in some way they may be uh you know mentally handicapped um you know um they, they'll have they'll have some condition right, um, right. And, they, and it's usually very idiosyncratic um and sometimes not sometimes it's not that severe you know there are yeah. some uh intus children you can't tell um, yeah. you know, but on the other hand, you know, you may have one who's three foot tall and has brittle bone disease and, right. you know, uh, doesn't make it past, you know, a hundred, right. uh, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and this is obviously one of those systems of control, right? It, right. In, in much the same way that the, uh, shoguns used to, uh, keep hostages from all the daimyo families at court in, uh, um, the uh, the emperor basically holds the future progeny of all of his lords hostage. Right, uh, right. And it's something uh, in Book of New Sun. That's that's um, what the Autark does too with all the yeah. Houses. The Autark keeps uh, he keeps uh, his uh, concubines, uh, concubines, yeah, yeah from, from different the, houses, yeah, yeah. The, the nobility, yeah. Same same <laughs> basic premise, yeah. Except rather than bother feeding all of these hostages, they just aren't born yet, um, yeah. and you'd you'd better uh, you'd better cooperate. And so when you want a kid. As a uh, as an imperial palatine noble, you have to petition uh, an office uh, on the in the imperial capital to yeah. have a kid, and they will. Um, and they've got your genes on file from when you were born, and they've got the genes of your spouse on file. Right. And they will uh, tailor the embryo and deliver it to you, um, and uh, and make sure that it comes out okay. Right. Right. Um, and so if you Cross uh, cross the emperor. No, your house is done. Yeah. Right, no you more can kids. try to have one of those misborns, but it's not going to uh, it's not going to work for you properly. Right, right? Um, it's like they're... the opposite of. Um, do you ever see that movie Man of Steel, Superman movie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the opposite of that, right? Where they had um, everybody was genetically kind of preordained to their occupation. And that's why their society was collapsing, except for Kal El, who was the product of a natural birth. And he was kind of like the savior figure, right? So it's kind of like the opposite. It's similar to that, but it's it's that's like yeah, the natural. Yeah, I can see that. That was the best part of the movie. That was, I, yeah. I, There's uh, I hear Snyder's doing some more space opera stuff here in the future. Oh, I'm kind of interested. Yeah, um, yeah. That's the best. Yeah, that was the best part of the movie. Was the beginning. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it, it reminded yeah. me of that in a lot of ways. Um, and then you have like homunculi too, which are like completely synthetic. Uh, yeah, they're they're drone. like replicants from yeah. Blade Runner, basically. Right. Um, yeah, right. And, and they'll be designed to to various purposes, uh, be that aesthetic or mm-hmm. uh, functional. Right. You may uh, like Adrian's family has a. And this is like mentioned in one scene. They have a herald who looks like a little devil, right? Like he's a little imp man, uh, who you know just announces people at parties, um, and uh, it's it's not dwelt upon. But like there are whole groups of synthetic people there's um you know the, the dryads for instance who yeah. are uh they were designed as a slave labor population they can photosynthesize in space right, right. So you know, right. to feed them uh and they're green and you know they you know they look like tree people a little right. bit 
uh, you know, it's a little bit of a Star Trek joke, you know, you green people. Right. Uh, green women. You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Um, yeah, and, and so you've got them as well. And, and Adrian's increasingly bothered by the fact uh, that he cannot have children. Right. <laughs> like, it bothers him because he's getting quite, you know, he lives for centuries, right? And that's a very lonely way to do it. So yeah. that bothers him, but it's also, you know, unlearning some of his native class prejudices because he, he works with these gladiators and he really likes these sort of, you know, um, ordinary people, right? And right. realizes that, oh, they're not just, you know, the peasants, right? And, right? and so he unlearns a lot of those those social things, but he also learns that some of the imperial prescriptions against, like, you know, plugging your Dr. Octopus arms into your back is probably, you know, <laughs> it's probably, uh, probably a good thing. Yeah, that's what makes it so interesting. Because it's like everybody... Even the the people you don't like, they all have a point, right? They all have like at least one thing that they're right about, you know. Like even his dad, who is not a very good man, he, you know, he, he's not wrong when you have to be stern sometimes. But he's like a monster all the time. <laughs> right? You know? Yeah, he's he's not a pleasant guy. But the thing I really love, but I I have a lot of uh, of fondness for unple- my unpleasant characters. Yeah. Uh, in no small part, because in a perverse way, they're the most fun to write. Yeah. Right. The only uh, you, one you know, who I would like... say didn't have, who is not correct so far about, I don't think anything, is Karn Sagara, which is interesting, I think. Um, well, he it's... likes art. Uh, <laughs> he's got that going for him. He's got good, he's good taste. taste. Yeah, he's got good um, taste for a villain. Yeah, he's, he's aesthetically correct. Yes. Um, but yeah, his whole, his his worldview is completely wrong, you know. it's. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I do not agree with Karn in any way. Right. Um, you know, but he's a very, he's a very, very fun character. He was fun. Um, I liked him a lot. Um, very difficult one to write. Um, the only character that's more difficult than Karn is is Valka, um, who is <laughs> um, who is, uh, is of course the uh, the sort of female lead for the series. Yeah. Um, and she's difficult just because um, she's so close to Hadrian all the time, and to see Hadrian from the outside is the exact opposite of what I do all the time. Yeah, uh, but I like to tell that joke, right? Like the only person is more complicated than, you know, this, uh, you know, space robot Satan is um, is, uh, is Valka. Um, <laughs> oh gosh! Um... But um, I, you know, and I, who, whom I love dearly, you know, one can love a fake person that you made up. But they are they are really fun to write. I, I love writing. Uh, I love writing the unpleasant characters. The thing I like about Hadrian's dad is that. You know, sort of uh, hard and unpleasant as he is, his sense of personal responsibility is on point. Right? Oh yeah, like, for sure. Like he he absolutely understands that. Like I am the lord of this, you know, continent basically because he doesn't rule the whole planet. Right. He's sort of a sort of a district manager, if you will, um, an archon. And uh, but he knows that like that's that's his um, that's his place, right? And he needs to. Now he has a very specific goal, and it is over a lot of the bodies, the people that he, uh, you know, is supposed to be, you know, ruling. Um, but he knows that he has to achieve what he wants to achieve for his family. Yeah. Um, and he's at least got that. That I think. Um, yeah, he's not completely warped, right? He's not completely broken. He's he's got a few things wrong, and that's kind of makes him a monster. But it's like he's still got this like core to him that he's right about certain things, right? About, about something, yeah, right? About something. And, and that's, and that goes back to the, the Chantry thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like as originally conceived, they weren't right about anything. Right. And you can't tell a good story if 
you know, one side is right about everything and the other side is wrong about everything right. because there's no story there. That's, that's it. You just told me everything, right? right? Um, you know, um, Sweetness and Light must win against uh, Team Meanie Face. And, <laughs> and that's a wrap, folks. Like, um, someone's going to punch somebody and credits will roll. We're done, right? right. Like, you know, it's, it's, there's nothing to sink your teeth into. And right. so, uh, like I said, you know, sort of my, my obsession at this point is to try and give everyone a say, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a substantive one, right? right. So it's been yeah. a big part of my focus. Yeah. Um, let's see. Um, a couple more things and then we can, I'll let you go to bed. <laughs> no, you're, you're fine. Um, so Hadrian was he's kind of got this like romantic sort of i think you described him once in another podcast or something he's kind of like a lord byron sort of figure um and he's raised on these like myths and stories of like earth earth's past heroes and legends and then um this is great quote in um in uh demon and white that i'm gonna read um that and then we can talk about it um so as a child we believe the world enchanted because age has not killed the magic we are born with as we grow, the simple spells of new sites in far-off places no longer work on us, and we grow cynical and cold. But I was old even then, a young man of 110. 115 years, I could no longer, I could, I no longer recall. But in age, once more, the magic returns, if you are willing and open to it. Though young wood does not burn for the moisture in it, as a lonely cinder may be catch in old dry wood and spark a great burning, so do such small things kindle the hearts of those with eyes and time to see. And if you burn long enough and bright as I have done, you come back to that simple truth of childhood. The world of the scientists, of engineers, and mathematicians does not exist. We live in stories in the demon-haunted world of myth. We are heroes and dragon. We, we are heroes and dragons, evil and divine. I felt almost that Simeon stood beside me as I stood beside Karnsagara in the halls of the Undying, and in the perverse Ark in Eden he kept bottled beneath his hanging pyramid. How wondrous is it that we walk the same universe as such legends? That a man on earth might breathe the same air as Alexander, as the first Caesar, as the god emperor, and the Maricanii he destroyed. So, that's a great quote. And um, kudos to you. That's fantastic. Uh, well, thank you. Uh, I, I, am, I am proud of that one. I'd forgotten about it. But yeah, I, I read that. that I'm one. like, oh my gosh. This is like what my podcast is kind of like focusing on. Um, so, he was raised on these stories of all these like... And he kind of... he At least initially, when he was more maybe more naive, he he kind of self-consciously was being dramatic, right? So he would be over dramatic to be kind of like the heroes in his stories. And then he eventually, he, as far as I can tell now, um, in, in Demon and White, from what I've read, he kind of just kind of becomes that, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't like pretend to do it anymore. He kind of just is that character. Yeah. Um, so what, so what role do these stories play for him? And was that good or bad for his like development? And um, and what what do you think stories? I mean, besides the quote which you wrote, right? Um, what do stories do for us, like as as real living people? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna steal from Wolf again, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's another bit in New Sun where he says something like, um, "Of all the things you know that are that are in the world, uh, only stories and music uh, we gave ourselves." Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's hard not to love uh, best those things, you know, which you made yourself, right? And, and 
stories in particular, right, are the one thing that really separates us, um, you know, in, in like a substantive sense from like other animals, right? Mm-hmm. Crows use tools, um, you know, uh, whales can communicate, right? But like we tell stories and you learn from stories, right? Um, you know, we can go, this is sort of a, a Petersonian thing, you know, we can go and read, um, you know, a story so that the characters can die horribly so we don't have to, right? Yeah. And, um, and, well, and that's true, right? You know, there's, um, there's a wine brand that's pretty common in America called Stag's Leap, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you see it in any grocery store. And Stag's Leap is a specific place, I think, in Napa County in California, where there's a, a, a ravine that's, like, just wide enough that deer think they can jump it. Yeah. Right? And maybe some of them can. But they turn up dead at the bottom of, of, of the ravine all the time, right? And if deer could only say, you know, uh, I saw Stephen try that and he's dead now, um, <laughs> you know, then that would not happen anymore, right? right. And, and, that's, and that's the thing, right? So all of these myths that Hadrian sort of lives in when he's growing up in his, you know, his father's castle and cannot, you know, really leave it, right? Um, are, that those, are, those are the stories that he kind of like, he wants to live in, right? Because yeah. he's, he's trapped at home. But when he actually has to start living in them, right, he makes these, he, make, he makes a lot of the same mistakes, right? Um, and, and um, but he, he does avoid certain other ones, right? And that's sort of what we all do, right? We grow up, you know, thinking that, you know, we can be like, for me, it was Luke Skywalker, right? And, you know, um, you, you try, right, to, to fit into these molds, right, and to sort of act, you know, nobly or, or, um, you know, with grace or whatever, mm-hmm. right? You know, virtue you're you're thinking about at a given moment, or all of them. You know, um, if you're you know an overachiever slash trying to do it right, and um, and, and so, um, and so he tries to live up to these examples, right? And, and this too is a world um, where those stories still mean something, because one of the things that science fiction tends to do is erase all of history. They figure, yeah. you know, 10,000 years from now, no one's going to read, no one's reading Gilgamesh anymore, right? right? Um, and like, almost Picard. nobody's reading, what's that? <laughs> Unless you're Jean-Luc Picard. Right. But like, <laughs> but, um, but almost nobody's reading Gilgamesh now, That's right? True. But there are people who do, right? Mm-hmm. And the fact that it's, it's made it this far, uh, only increases the chances that it's going to make it farther. And there's a, there's a law for that. I forget who's the law it is, right? Yeah, I've heard, um, I've heard that. Yeah, yeah I, I think it's something like... Stuff and all, yeah. yeah, I think it's something Taleb talks about. Okay. I can't remember. But um, it um, there, there's no reason this stuff's going to disappear, especially now. I mean, there are so many copies of the Epic of Gilgamesh. Yeah. They can't all get deleted, um, <laughs> you know, or right. burned. It's very hard to... To live in in Fahrenheit 451 now, the real danger is just that nobody wants to read, right? You don't have to burn the books. Um, Certainly to read Gilgamesh. And so, um, but like I said, this is a culture that like took all the furniture from these stories. And it wasn't just stories, right? It was was fashion, cuisine, music, and everything, right? And they combined them Uh, too. So like Arthur, you you, you put like (laughs) El Cid and King Arthur together. So it's Sid Arthur, right? So like they take these stories, you know. Yeah, yeah, but, but... Combine them too with, with and this is I I I'm especially <laughs> proud of this dumb pun and you know like I shouldn't pat myself on the back right like it, it never looks cool in a podcast but it, it's Siddhartha we can't right? see you pat yourself in the back um, yeah well I'm not doing it my hands are on the desk um, but uh, but he's also Siddhartha right 
<laughs> right. Wow. So it's it's a it's a conflation that. of the Arthur and the Buddha story that turned into an, a religion of its own. That's, right. Wow. Um, and that funny. that was just such like a silly joke that taking it seriously was something I thought would be interesting. Um, <laughs> And uh, and so that that's one of the more improbable elements of the world building. I'll give you I'll give you that. But at the <laughs> same time, this idea that there might be a bunch of warrior monks that like have the knights of the round table as their bodhisattvas and like try to emulate the sort of like eightfold path, but it's chivalric virtue right. is a really interesting thing. And it's a very like minor bit of the world building. It doesn't impinge on the story very much, but it is absolutely something I want to do in like uh, in more detail in a subsequent volume once I brush up on my uh, my Buddhist texts a little bit. Right. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but I, I think I think that's fun. Um, but like all well, these pieces are still around, right? And, mm-hmm. and and Hadrian is one of those people who still reads Gilgamesh, right? right. Uh, and part of that, I think, is just that I really like Gurney Halleck in Dune, and he's always quoting the, uh, you know, the Space Bible at people, and um, you know, a bunch of poetry and things like yeah. that. And, and I've always been that guy, right? Who will who will I used to wait tables, and you know, like every bit, you know, every like Mother's Day, I was like, all right, once more into the breach, dear friends, and I did like the whole spiel, right? Uh, <laughs> close the wall up with our English dead, you know. Uh, and I would sometimes try to freestyle in, you know, lasagna-related lines, but, um, you know, uh, like it's an Italian restaurant. But, um, but like, that was always me, and that part of Hadrian is is, is me in a way that, you know, because mm-hmm. people tend to think that, like, oh, your main character is a self-insert, right? But no, but there are always pieces of me in all of these characters. I don't remember right? you blowing up a son and committing genocide. Uh, I think I would have been on the time. news. <laughs> um, you know, I had to get off. I had to get off social media for a reason. Oh, right. Uh, it's a know, metaphorical yeah, it was, son. Metaphorical genocide. Yeah. Oh no, no. I just mean like it was. It was pushing me there. It's gonna go build my rocket ship. Um, can it go? Uh, can it go? Uh, blow out the sun. No, uh, but uh, but yeah. So all of these these little bits of of, of myths and legends and, and in weird pieces, like you say, there's a really fun uh, confusion with uh, uh, a bit of the Silmarillion and some Greek mythology in book four that I'm excited about. Oh, nice. I, um, there have been Tolkien references in the book. I think the first, in, I think in Empire of Silence you referenced, um, oh, if only there was a word to describe a sudden good turn, you know, like a, at the end of the story, you know, like a... Oh, yeah, there, there were a couple <laughs> really uh, special jokes. Yeah, I'm like, I see what you did. And I'm like, yeah, yeah uh, Adrian is clearly read Lord of the Rings, but he uh, is not so gauchous to, to make a really explicit call out. You know, <laughs> he doesn't say Frodo's name at any point, because that would break immersion, right? It would, yeah. Uh, it would that, that's, that's too much, but like, it's it's there, uh, yep. you know? Um, it's there. There, uh, there are a couple, because like, if I get one consistent strain of criticism and maybe this is a, a note to end on because it, it's uh, sort of uh, ties back to my mission statement i guess mm-hmm. as a writer uh it's that i um i clearly love my ancestors too much right you know uh there's there's you know like they can see the dune they can see the star wars oh, uh, although you know but i repeat myself um you know and uh, you know they can see tolkien and uh was that a doctor who joke yes it was uh you know things like that but, but no one ever is upset about the the the, the dante right no one's yeah. upset about the um you know uh the, shakespeare the yeah 
the Buddhism or the Shakespeare, yeah, the the, the recurring Shakespeare joke. Right. No one has ever commented on, uh, and I think I'm hilarious, but I digress. Um, <laughs> you know, um, and the thing is, right? Like those are all a part of 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 our tradition as science fiction writers, right? right. Readers, right? And that's my culture or a part of it, mm-hmm. and. You know, of course, it influenced me, and and I feel like including these grace notes, um, you know, especially in a way that like I think is meaningful for the world building and sort of thematizing, right, is a way to to homage those writers and to sort of you know be grateful to them and not to you know constantly be trying to reinvent the wheel, whatever that means. Yeah. You know? Well, the fact that um, you're um, kind of responding to to Dune, also you you you're doing that that series honor in that way because it's like worthy enough for you to comment on and try to maybe correct in some ways, thus building that tradition. Cause that's what like C.S. Lewis would do with people like, um, Oh, what's his name? I can't remember now. Uh, George Orwell, I think, um, or Arthur C. Clarke. I think he did that with Arthur C. Clarke. Oh with yeah. Space Childhood. trilogy is kind of a Clark response. Yeah. yeah. So they kind of, went there's like enough forth. there, right? There's enough there to talk about. Right. And I'm not saying that like Dune is bad. It's like my, favorite science yeah. fiction fantasy you're, you're thing kind of working ever, off right? that tradition you know and that's what the medieval authors would do you know they would take the story that they've been given and they tweak it in some way they make it their own in some way but they would keep a lot of it the same right and they did kind of pass it forward that way yeah. and it's, well that's what a culture is yeah right yeah. And this is what's so frustrating yeah. me. Like, all the people like the idea of like you know, um, of, of, of stealing ideas is this like really sort of modern marketplace. Thing, yeah, it's right? we crazy. Talk about, it's crazy. We talk about like entertainment franchises, right? A mm-hmm. franchise is like I own this McDonald's, right? Right, but right. it's like you know one of the McDonald's. We talk about you know oh you know developing a new property, right? right. As if it's a lot that you're putting a, 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 a gas station on, right? And that's not a culture. Right. Yeah. And, and this whole attitude just vexes me, uh, you know, uh, 12 ways to Sunday. And I, I you know, I, I owe a lot to do. I owe a lot to Lord of the Rings. I owe a lot to Dante and Shakespeare. Right. And and, mm-hmm. uh, and Gilgamesh. Right. right. <laughs> and all of these all of these things. And to um, silo myself and pretend that that didn't happen so that I can develop a property to put my franchise on right. uh, and start selling, you know, um, you know, good burgers is, um, <laughs> you know, not like that's, that's not what art is. That's not what a culture is. And, and we need art and a culture. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, I'm not going to be so atomized as to pretend that doom does not exist. Right. Um, you know, it would be lying to my readers uh, not to, you know, acknowledge that these things have mattered to me. Right. Um, and, you know, Makes sense. you know, the line is drawn here to, to <laughs> quote Dune. Like, that's, uh, you know, attitude of the knife. I'm well, done. That's, that's my point. That's something, and I have to have an obligatory Tim Powers reference. Um, because I think I've referenced him in every single podcast I've done so far. I love Tim. He's the best. Well, that's something he does too, right? So he, that's something he explicitly does in his novels. He'll take literature like that he likes and somehow, in, he, I mean, his, his, many of his novels are about poets, you know, about, yeah. Oh, about yeah. Um, even like, you know, all these romantic poets and he'll take their poet, their poetry and he'll make it his own in his own way, you know, and he'll, he'll turn it like some phrase that they put, 
that they had in their poetry, um, like in Christina Rossetti's Goblin Goblin Market, right? So he'll like, oh, that she was clearly writing that when she was under the the, the influence of this demon, right, <laughs> or something, right? And so, like, this is what she means when she was referencing this in her poem. And um, so he'll like, kind of he'll take that and he'll kind of make it his own, and he'll give it he'll make it something new while still building off of and drawing attention to these these older works of art. Um, and the other thing I love about about Tim too is he doesn't discriminate, right? My favorite. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, my favorite sort of, it's almost a joke, right? Is he starts the stress of her regard with a, an epigram from Clark Ashton Smith, right? Yeah. You know, who's like, he's sort of, you know, he's like Lovecraft, right? He's like the Lovecraft that nobody remembers anymore, right. except us, you know, like super nerds, right? And, and to start a book about Lord Byron and Percy Shelley with uh, an epigram from this weird tales, you know, yeah. spec fic writer from the thirties. No one remembers, right. Is saying, this is just as good, right. Yep. You know, yep. and he underlines that, right. And puts it right in the front of the book. And it's like, think about that. Yeah. And, it's uh, and, it's, and he's right. Right. Yeah. Like, cause that stuff is great. Uh, Smith is awesome. And he, you know, for all of the credit that Lovecraft gets great, cause it's never actually the person who like invents these things that gets the credit. Like, yeah. William Hope Hodgson was doing cosmic horror before Lovecraft was writing, right. right? But Lovecraft did it best, question mark, or most famously. Yeah, or, he got or, the. However, it worked out. He got the credit for it, right? And yeah, of course, not until he for. died, right? Which is tragic, and you know, yeah. Well, like, um, well, uh, Tolkien didn't invent fantasy, right? Of um, course not, right? Right. It's, um, but it's, but is he outclassed everyone else? I think so. Yeah, like he did. Um, it, he definitely did it better than most. Um, but he didn't invent it, right? He didn't, and he, he wasn't even, like, Tolkien wasn't even super popular when he was first published. It wasn't until, like, the 70s, after the hippies got a hold of his, his, his books that they, it became, and, like, Led Zeppelin and stuff like that made it more, made it more popular. And it wasn't yeah, until, like, uh, later. Yeah, God does work in mysterious ways. He does, uh, yeah, it's crazy. And, like, the, the very last <laughs> people you, on Earth who you'd think would identify with Tolkien, like, these, the hippie people, you know, because, of, you know, Tolkien's environmental you know, consciousness, consciousness in his books is clearly there. Um, but it's, it's like embedded in this, it's embedded in this broader contra- context of like traditionalism, you know? Right. Um, well, well, so environmentalism has always been, a, you know, a, a traditional conservative staple. Right? right. Yeah. Right. It's, it's only been uncoupled from that in really like the last 70 years and particularly right. in an American context, right? right? And that's another thing too, right? Like no one's on the other side of that issue, right? Like nobody wants to live in like the Captain Planet villains world. Like, <laughs> like nobody wants to like choke when they go outside and like there to be garbage everywhere. Right. Like, you know, they, they, they may drop a candy wrapper because, you know, no one's looking because people are, you know, not, you know, all good, but like nobody wants like everybody sees like an exploded trash bag on the side of the road and they're like the world is going to the dogs right. um, and they yeah. aren't eating the trash um you know like it's like no one it, it's such a strange thing mm-hmm. uh, it's such a strange thing that like that is like the little bit of tolkien that people will try to like deconstruct tolkien around try yeah. to turn him into someone he wasn't right um but uh, that is maybe another 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 show. Yeah, no, it's, uh, oh man, we could. This has been fun. Um, yeah, yeah, like, no, I, I had a great one time. More, I'm sorry, I rambled so much. Oh yeah, no, you're fine. I got one more question. It's a bit goofy, and I've been trying to ask this with everybody. Um, so this podcast is called "I Might Believe in Fairies," 
because I'm rather agnostic on the subject of whether or not fairies exist. I had someone on my show, uh, the second episode, she is convinced fairies are real, and it's a very fun episode. Um, she's also a very devout Catholic. And um, there's nothing in church teaching that says fairies are or are not real. Um, but I want to ask you, uh, Christopher Rocchio, do you believe in fairies? Uh, my gut instinct is uh, I, that I do not. Ah, okay. uh, but, uh, you know, maybe uh, what people are referring to uh, as fairies or something else that I might believe in. So sure. I don't know. Um, you know, maybe it's maybe it's something else. But uh, if we're talking like little, you know, winged people, I'm not so sure. Ah. Uh, certainly not in like a, you know, in a fossil record sense. I see. No, I uh, but, <laughs> That's uh, a fun question I like to ask people. And you'd be surprised at the the different answers I've been getting. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I bet. You know, I mean, it's, it's an interesting question. I, I wish they were real. Yeah. You know, I wish there were, I wish there were elves and wizards. And, uh, um, not so much dragons, but dragons right. are kind of cool. But, dragons are cool. You know. Tolkien thought so too. He just didn't want him in London, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like over there. Yeah, like some, um, yeah. Cool. Yeah, my brother would be all over that, but uh, not me. Yeah. Well, I think that's pretty much everything I wanted to talk about. Um, this is a lot of fun, man. I, and I appreciate yeah, you coming you on my show. Me. Thank you for having me. This was an absolute blast. Um, I, I know I talk a bit much, but uh, you know, I, I hope uh, we haven't lost everybody with my nonsense. So. <laughs> no, it's been fun. Uh, so everybody, go out and buy. Christopher Rocchio's uh, The Sun Eater series. Buy them all, read them all right now. They're fantastic. Thank you for listening to this episode of I Might Believe in Fairies. Please leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Please follow me on Twitter at Aaron Erber and like me on Facebook. If you are excited to see where the podcast is going and want to offer some support for the project, you can find me on Patreon. Music is by Alexander Nakarada, and podcast art was designed by my wonderful sister-in-law, Linnea Kisby. Until next time, talk to you soon.